on whenever you're ready. Okay, the story begins. We are on page 27. This is, this is uh, I'm excited for this discussion because what we are about to start is the beginning of the formal part of Bhagavad What we've learned until now, the first 27 pages, um, don't get too intimidated. I think it starts on like page four or something. So really, whatever. <laughs> what we've learned until now, though, was the preliminary parts of the davening, the preliminary parts of the sitter, the preparatory parts of the sitter. Now starts the formal part of the davening. We're one to be davening in shul. This is where they would start from in shul when using this sitter. And even if somebody isn't reciting this prayer, particularly, there's going to be a lot of life lessons and perspective that we're going to learn from it. Let's take a, a step back here. Let's understand the context. The verses that we say here, Hodu la Hashem, let me look at the English here. I'm looking at the computer. Hold on. Hodul Hashem, offer praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, etc. Who authored this prayer? So these are actually, uh, this is cut and paste from the Bible. From the book of Divrei Hayamim, the book of Chronicles. Anybody familiar with the book of Chronicles? Anybody heard of the book of Chronicles? Okay, right, there's 24 books of the Bible. There's the five books of Moses. There's the prophets. We have the Megillah. We have, we have the Tehillim, the, the Psalms. So the last book of the entire book of the books of the Bible, entire uh, Tanakh, is Divrei Hayamim, the book of Chronicles, which is basically a genealogy trace from Adam until however far it goes, maybe King David or something. It was authored by Ezra. Ezra was the one who actually authored most of the prayers as well. Most of the prayers, the Amidah, and the, most of the blessings, most blessings, the, the concept of saying Baruch Atah Hashem, who invented that, right? It's not in the Tanakh, but that was authored by Ezra and his court. Not only Ezra, but his entire Beit Din. Ezra authored the book of Divrei Hayamin, the book of Chronicles, to trace the lineage of Jewish people in general, to trace the lineage of King David. Why is this significant? We just marked the day of Tisha B'Av a few days ago, right? Let's take a step back. Uh, just historical context here. I think this is important. It's important to understand this, but I think in general, getting a um, historical context of our Judaism, our history is so important. <clears throat> so we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? Jacob has the 12 tribes. Joseph, 12 tribes. Jacob end up in Egypt. Eventually, Jewish people end up in, as slaves in Egypt. 210 years later, they're redeemed from Egypt. The splitting of the Red Sea, etc. They're eventually uh, redeemed from Egypt. They go into Mount Sinai. And 50 days later, they receive the Torah. Fifth, 40 years later, 41 years later, we're led into Israel, the land of Israel. We finally made it to our destination. We're led by Joshua. And it's several uh, decades or maybe even hundreds of years, years later where we finally plant ourselves in Jerusalem. We finally conquered the land. King David um, set the uh, foundation for the temple. Solomon, King Solomon, his son, built the temple. And now we have this temple. We finally met our goal. Abraham's promise has, uh, th that God gave to Abraham, that people are just going to come to Israel and we're going to have a home for God, came to fruition. <clears throat> for 410 years. Babylonians, this 
destroyed the temple that was Tisha B'Av, that was the ninth of Av, right? Where did we go? Where did the Jews go? So the bulk of Jews at the time went to Babylon. That's where we were exiled to. This was a 70-year exile, 7-0. This is when the story of Purim took place in ancient Persia, I think modern-day Iran. And at the end of the 70-year exile, Ezra gathered the Jewish people and said, it's time to go back to Israel. And he rebuilt the second temple, which lasted for 420 years, ultimately uh, culminated in our current exile, which has been going for close to 2,000 years. Okay, so when Ezra takes back all the Jewish people to Israel, you have to understand, prior to this exile, the entire Jewish population, most of the Jewish population, lived in Israel, which is incredible. I don't think this ever happened again in history. Right? You got to imagine this, how, how incredible it is. You go to Israel now, and majority Jewish people, but you don't have the majority of Jewish people in Israel, I don't think. Um, over here, you had literally everybody in Israel, with the exception of some Italians. You had Jewish Italians. Um, they were there for business. And they actually formed a very strong Jewish Italian community. You may have had Jews in Yemen, but I believe the Yemenites got there much later after the destruction of the temple. But anyway, now there's this 70-year period of us not in our homeland. We're mixed together among the Gentiles, among the other nations. And now... Ezra says, we're going back to Israel. We're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to reestablish Jewish leadership. We need to reestablish lineage. We need to clarify Jewish lineage. And that's what the book of Chronicles does. Needless to say, it's not the most fascinating of books. <laughs> I don't know if there's any real storyline or anything. I'll be honest, I'm not so fluent in the book of Chronicles. But it's not like... Um, it's not like the prophets where you're reading about wars and it's not like the, the book of Exodus where it's, our, our, you know, I don't know if there's any real storyline. Anyways, John. So I was looking, I, I have the Tanakh, the okay. version. And so I looked it up because I could see on page 28, it says where in Chronicles this is from. And it's pretty interesting because I, I thought, I always thought it looked like psalms and it's it actually says verse yes. 8 through 22 is an abridgment of psalm 105 and then right right so the book of chronicles this is the book of Chron this is taken from the book of chronicles but chronicles was actually quoting psalms hmm. and, and the reason why is because who wrote psalms most of the psalms david king david so what the book of chronicles is doing is recounting reiterating the praises that king david did during the services in the temple so the book of chronicles starts from adam and eve and traces down all the way and then it says it finally makes it to king david and it tells us about the services king david performed where he brought the ark of the covenant that held the tablets where the divine presence rested into the holy of holies and started performing the services the korbanot that we learned about extensively, the ketorah, the incense, the, sir, the, the sacrifices that we learned about in, in, um, extensively. King David is now finally performing all of these with the divine presence there with the Ark of the Covenant. And as he's doing this, 
he's reciting these praises. The book of Chronicles is quoting the praises that King David's authored in the book of Psalms. Let, let's take a quick glance at these praises. Let's just read them real quickly. We're not going to read the whole thing right now. We'll probably read the first 10 verses. I'm just going to read. We'll just skim through it real quickly, just so we know what we're actually talking about over here. Offer praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make his deeds known among the nations, sing to him, chant praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. May the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice, search for the Lord and his might, continually seek, continually seek his countenance. Remember the wonders that he wrought. Wrought? What does wrought mean? What's a W? <laughs> uh... My Hebrew is better than my English, I'll tell you that. Brought about, I think. Brought about, okay, that's what I figured. His miracles, his judgments, his mouth, of the senses of Israel, his servant Jacob, his chosen ones, etc. Okay, it's a very positive, upbeat, uh, cheery uh, prayer, very exciting prayer. And actually, commentaries point out there's a book called Seder Hayom. Seder Hayom was a more Kabbalistic book. Um, many of the prayers that we know about actually are Quoted in the book Seder Hayom, it was authored in the 15th century, um, and it, this is actually where the tradition of reciting this prayer is extracted from. And it says that this should actually be recited with uh, <clears throat> with kind of like an upbeat tonation type of uh, tune. I don't know if there's any formal tune for it, but it should be recited in a you know it's not going to be like the Book of Lamentations. You know, it's going to have a little bit of vitality to it little bit of energy, a little bit of excitement. That's how we start off our prayers in the morning. We start off with an oomph. I'll tell you a great story. I just read this story today. I thought it was awesome. There was a rabbi, the turn of the uh, 19th century. No, turn of the 20th century. Rabbi Meir Shapiro. Anybody heard of Rabbi Meir Shapiro? He founded the Dafyomi movement. There's a tradition among many Jews to read a full page of Talmud, to study a full page of Talmud. Risa, you do it, right? You do the Daphim, right? To, to do a full page of Talmud every single day, and you finish every seven and a half years, you complete the entire Talmud, and it's a big celebration. It's a big deal, and it's a lot of work. This tradition was established by Rabbi Meir Shapiro at the turn of the 20th century. Um, I don't know the exact year that he started it, but he lived in. Lublin. He headed a yeshiva called Chachme Lublin. It was quite uh, an advanced yeshiva, by the way. Apparently, to get into that yeshiva, to get accepted to that yeshiva, you had to have been tested on 200 and something pages of Talmud by heart with its commentaries. So they, they were quite advanced studies. Um, just, just historical context, uh, Rabbi Meir Shapiro was by no means um, a, a Chabad rabbi. He was a Hasidic rabbi, actually. Um, I don't know which sect, but he was actually um, seated at the Rebbe's wedding. They were given, he, they gave him like a prominent seat. The Rebbe's wedding took place in, I believe, Warsaw. And he did, um, he did have a prominent seat there. But anyways, Rabbi Meir Shapiro was a Hasidic Jew. And we all know the stereotypes, uh, the stereotype of Hasidic Jews. You got to be happy. You got to have simcha. You got to have vitality. You got to have joy. Otherwise, they send you back to Brooklyn. <laughs> Rabbi Meir Shapiro was visiting Germany. 
and we all know the stereotypes of the Yekesha Jews. And I mean this to no uh, offense of anybody's of Yekesha descent, but this is just the stereotype. But the Yekesha Jews, the, the German Jews, are a little bit, uh, are, are, don't have that same vitality, but much more focused on structure than on passion. Right? Um, Rabbi Raleigh grew up in a, in a Yekesha German Jewish uh, community in New York, but they were from Germany. And he always says that Yom Kippur, they started services at like 6.30 in the morning. They went all day. And there was like a schedule. 6.30 services start. 8.32, Kaddish. 8.36, take out the Torah. And as the cantor was finishing, it's getting close to 8.32 or whatever the time was. It's getting close and people are freaking out. They're looking at their watches. The Chazan makes it exactly at 8.32 and everybody goes, good, talented, talented kid, right? That, that's kind of the, the stereotype that, that German Jews have. Rabbi Meir Shapiro is from Lublin, from, from uh, where's Lublin? Do you know where Lublin is? I think it's Poland. John, aren't you the, uh, the geography? Uh... With the help of Rabbi Google. I'm going to tell you exactly where it is. Yeah, it's in Poland. <laughs> Poland, okay, that's what I figured. Rabbi Meir Shapiro visiting from Poland is in this German synagogue. And the fact that the shul was lacking vitality, apparently the rabbi of the shul wasn't making it any better. <laughs> you know, he was very much feeding into it. But Rabbi Meir Shapiro was visiting. He was a prominent rabbi. So they say, he's, the rabbi said, Rabbi Meir Shapiro also was a sharp person. They said to him, what do, you, what do you think of our shul? So he says, it reminds me of the, the, a beverage store that I saw on my way to the shul. Right? Beverages served ice cold under the supervision of the rabbi. <laughs> He was trying to insinuate that prayers can't just be cold. They have to be structured and, and you have to have a structure. You got to show up on time and there has to be predictability. Okay, fine. But at the end of the day, we're talking to God and there has to be passion. There has to be excitement. And this is actually the theme of this prayer as we're soon going to see. It's kind of like that Perkyavos. It says it shouldn't be a routine perfunctory act. It, exactly. Well said. Well said. Right. We're not robots at the end of the day. And it's hard because we're reading from a text. But one of the goals of this um, of this discussion is to is to illuminate that text. And even if it's not a prayer that we yet say, we're still going to get perspective in how we approach our relationship with God. So the first thing that we need to know, take a look at the first line, offer praise to the Lord. And as you guys know very well. I do not like translations <laughs> because translations, even if accurate, are, are limiting because there's more than one translation in the Hebrew. Let's take a look at the Hebrew. Hodu la Hashem. Hodu, what does the word hodu mean? Hodu can mean several things. It can mean thank or praise. It can also mean like the word, same word as the word moda'ani. It's actually the same root word. It means to concede. We're not just thanking God or praising God. We are conceding to God. This is the beginning of prayer. 
the beginning, uh, um, you know, besides for all the preliminary stuff. But this is the beginning of prayer. We're about to approach our relationship with God. And we're not yet at a point where we necessarily appreciate God uh, intellectually or philosophically. Certainly not emotionally. But we can concede that he is what we believe in. So we start off by merely conceding to God. And by the way, that's very liberating. That's why it's done with joy. I thought when, you said conceive, but I, it's concede. Concede, right? yes. The, the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And to, to concede to God, by the way, is quite liberating. Because if my relationship with God is founded solely on how I how I conceive him, how I conceptualize him, or how I feel about him, that's good on some days. That's good on a good day, but it's bad on a bad day, right? But if my relationship with God is not dependent on my perspective or my, my appreciation or but it's deeper than that. It's it's founded on my commitment, on my faith, emuna. That's what Hashem. I'm conceding to God, and the goal of prayer is to develop that into an appreciation, an intellectual appreciation, and more importantly, an emotional appreciation, and actually even more importantly, a behavioral appreciation. What am I going to do for God? Right. How am I going to embrace my mission? But it starts off with pure faith, with concession. It starts off with just, I don't understand necessarily. I just woke up. <laughs> I don't necessarily, but this is something that I, my heart of hearts know is the truth. And what is the emotional response to that attitude? Simcha, joy. The emotional response to faith is joy. Eventually, it's going to mature into love, into reverence. And that's by the time we get to the Shema. By the time we get to the Amida, it's going to mature into a much deeper sense of a concession. But at this point, it's just pure faith, simple faith, which responds into joy. Take a look at um, I'm going to read it again from the top because there's a couple of lines I, I would like to focus on here. Offer praise to the Lord or concede to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Which by the way, when it comes to his name which is how I relate to him I can proclaim it. But when it comes to him himself I can only concede. Make his deeds known amongst the nations. Make a Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush Hashem means show everybody how great God is. Be proud of it. Right? Somebody asks you, how are you doing? Baruch Hashem, thank God. Right? Make him known to the world. Sing to him. Right? Not just uh, um, mechanically, but chant praises to him. Speak of all of his wonders. Glory in his holy name. This is the line here I'd like to focus on. May the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. So there was a rabbi known as the Malbim. 
anybody heard of the Malbim? The Malbim is not his name. It's actually a... Uh, the Malbim is a... an acronym. His name was... Rabbi Meir Leibish. Wister. Lived in... I'm just looking here on Wikipedia because I didn't remember, I don't memorize dates, but he lived from 1809 to 1879. So he lived a, a good chunk of the uh, 19th century. His name is the Malbim. He's a famous commentary on the Tanakh. And particularly the parts of Tanakh, uh, um, he's, not actually, he's not actually on the five books of Moses, but on the other parts of the Tanakh, the other parts of the Bible, he's one of the most famous of commentaries. And he actually provides a fascinating explanation on this verse. May the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. So he says, generally, when you're seeking something, you have a goal, right? When do you rejoice? When you've reached your goal, right? You go to work to make money. So when you get the money, you rejoice. Until then, it's a long day, <laughs> Right. When it um, or whatever it is, whenever I have some sort of goal, I'm seeking something, I'm looking for something. I'm not really satisfied till I found it. I might even be frustrated until I found it. And I'm looking for something. I lost something. I lost my phone. You ever talk on the phone and say, hold on, I need to find my phone. <laughs> Been there, done that. OK, you lost your phone. Right. And losing your phone these days is literally like losing a limb. It can cause a lot of anxiety. <laughs> Don't lose your phone. Don't do it. Not worth it. You're not happy until you've found your phone. But he says, those who seek, the contrast that to this verse though, the heart of those, may the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seeking God, even if you don't feel like you've found him yet, the journey itself is a joyous journey. It's something that we rejoice about. We're not just going to rejoice when we feel that we finally found God. But we're going to rejoice even in the journey. The journey itself is a motivating journey. The journey itself is a joyous journey. The journey itself is a sacred journey. And this is, I think, such an important thing to remember, uh, not only during prayer, but in general. We may feel distant from God. We may feel that we've done things to uh, isolate ourselves from God, isolate ourselves from our mission. But if I'm seeking God, I'm not saying seeking alone is enough. But if we are seeking God, that itself is something to give ourselves a pat on the back about, something to rejoice about. I'll tell you a great story. The Magid of Mezrich. Magid of Mezrich, Rabbi Dovber of Mezrich, was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov founded the Hasidic movement. The Magid of Mezrich succeeded him when he passed away. That was a whole story within itself. His son was a young boy and was playing hide and seek. Did a good job. And he's just waiting to be found. He's waiting, waiting, waiting. And at some point he starts crying. The Magid hears his boy crying. He finds him. He says, what's going on? Why are you crying? He says, we're playing hide and seek and nobody found me. He says, so why would you cry? You're doing a good job. You won. He says, they didn't find me because they're not looking. The Magid's father started crying. He says, Dad, why are you crying? I'm a kid. It's just a game. <laughs> no, I don't know if he said that. But, Dad, why are you crying? So he says, I know now how God feels. God hides. And why are we stopping to look? He wants us to look. 
And what the Malbim is telling us with this verse, the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice just by looking for God. We're doing something right. We're doing something good. We're doing something sacred. Take a look at the next verse. Search for the Lord and his might. Continually, continually seek his countenance. So how often should you search for God? Always. In everything we do, we have the ability to search for God. But when we take that approach, when are we going to be joyous? Right. Let's do the equation here. If when you're seeking God, that's a joyous experience. And you're supposed to seek God always. Judaism expects us to always be joyous. To always have joy. To always have simcha. The, the, um, a similar idea. It's not exactly the same. But somebody wrote a letter to the Rebbe. People used to write to the Rebbe for all sorts of uh, issues and challenges. And they needed advice. And they, um, they said that they had difficulty keeping up with exercise. They weren't motivated to exercise. The Rebbe responded that, take a look at Maimonides. In one place, Maimonides says that you have a mitzvah to take care of the body. Taking care of the body is a service to God. Because just like the soul is from God, the body is from God as well. And you need a body, healthy body to, to serve God properly. Take a look at another place in Maimonides, another chapter, where Maimonides says, all services to God must be done with joy. So put two and two together. You do it with joy because it's a service to God. It's the same thing over here. We need, when we seek God, that's a joyous experience. When should we seek God? When should we be joyous? <laughs> Always. Now, how do we seek God? Where do we look for him? Okay, so we'll remember for our Tanya classes, you've got to look very close to home, right? Got to search the depths of the soul. We've got to search within ourselves. And this is actually what the next several verses tell us. So I'm just going to read this again. Search for the Lord and his might. Continually seek his countenance. Where do I look for him? So number one, historically, you could look and see how he was always with us. Remember the wonders that he wrought, his miracles and the judgments of his mouth. So look at the good things that he's done for you in the past. Um, look at the judgments of his mouth. What's that referring to? Anybody know? That's referring to the Torah. That's what the commentaries say. It's referring to the Torah. If you want to find God, study his Torah, study his values. The more we're familiar with God's values, the more we'll be familiar with him. And then the next verse says, O descendants of Israel, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments extend over the entire earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he has commanded to a thousand generations. If you want to find God, remember the covenant. What is the covenant that God made with Abraham that is still standing today? That we are going to be his people. His chosen people. And as chosen people, we're given a sacred mission. To be a light unto the nations. To be a source of light, to be a source of inspiration, to be a source of morality. And what's going to motivate all of that, that goes back to the simple faith that we have, that we've inherited deep within our souls.
we have it. We start off conceding to it in this prayer, and it's throughout the journey of the sitter, which serves as a tool to seek God, that we develop our um, level of consciousness of that soul. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>